0: Hello, welcome to New Books and Film, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Jeremy Ritchie. Jeremy is a film historian, publisher. Jeremy is a film historian, publisher of the journals Art Decades and Soledad, and whose essays have appeared in several books, magazines, and DVD releases. His latest book is Sylvia Crystal, from Emmanuel to Chabrol, and is published by Cult Epics. Jeremy, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it.
0: So first thing, please share us with, um, again, I don't know. Um, so first thing, uh, share with us what your book is about.
1: Uh, so the book is about the career of the uh, Dutch actress Sylvia Christel. Uh, it's concerning her career from 1972 to 1981, uh, which was her uh, the most exciting period that she had in front of the camera. Um yeah, so it's concerning Sylvia's work uh, basically throughout the 70s, and uh, then it ends at Lady Chatterley's the Lover uh, during her failed Hollywood run.
0: So you write in your book that you first had the idea of documenting Sylvia Crystal's life during the 1990s. What was your original vision for that as compared to the book when it came out?
1: So I, uh, the genesis for the book, uh, yeah, it, it happened in the, the late uh, mid to late 90s when I first saw uh, the film she made with Valerian Barovchek uh, called La Marge. Um, I, that the, the first time I saw that film uh, really, really affected me in a way that uh, quite unlike any other work, uh, it immediately became one of my favorite films and one of my favorite performances. Uh, after I saw the film, I began uh, you know, researching her life and work, and I was struck by uh, just how many great directors she had worked with, just how really interesting uh, her career in front of uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. In front of and behind the camera was, and I was really bothered by um, that she had basically been written out of film history, and uh, the only role I ever mentioned was Emmanuel. Uh, to the point where you know it was impossible to read anything about Silvio without um, having it correct connected directly to Emmanuel. Uh, which, uh, as great as that film and the first two films were, uh, she deserves uh, to be remembered for much more. Um, so that was really the Genesis for it. Uh, you know, when I, f- when I first got the idea for the book in the late nineties, I mean, I hadn't even written online yet. So the idea of writing a book, uh, seemed like a very, you know, distant prospect. So it took me a long time to get to the point where I felt like I was ready to do that. And I finally started preparing it and researching and writing it officially around 2017. Um, and, uh, you know, by that point, the, the focus of the book had come into to view that I, that I really wanted to, uh, you know, pinpoint a look at this, this decade that she had, where she worked with, you know, some of the finest European directors of the post-war era, some of the most interesting films and gave some of the most, uh, you know, memorable, memorable performances. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a great opportunity to, uh, Really focus on a, I think, a special figure in film history that, like I said, had been, you know, all but, um, uh, you know, discarded at that point.
0: So you mentioned LaMarge was the first film of Sylvia's work that you experienced. And she's got a lot of films that are very obscure, you know, when we think about film history at large. And between the internet and repertoire film distributors, you can almost find anything these days. But back then, when you first had the idea to write about her, a lot of these films were as readily available. How did you find some of them, and what was the most difficult film to find?
1: Uh, so it was the way that I found Lamarge, and this was how I found most of her films in the period were, you know, just through gray market channels in the '90s. Uh, you know, before uh, streaming on the internet, before everything was downloadable or found on YouTube, before any of that, I mean, film fans had to rely on uh, gray market video companies. Um, like Luminous Film and Video Works, Midnight Video, Video Search in Miami, European Trash Cinema, Trash Palace. There were a bunch of them. And um, so, yeah, Lamarge I got through Luminous Film and Video Works. Uh, and uh, these were basically companies that would take uh, films, you know, that had appeared on VHS or television prints throughout Europe, and they would uh, basically dupe them and import them to the States, copy artwork. They were essentially bootleg Um Uh, titles. Um, But yeah, at that point in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were just a handful of her films available. Uh, And since then, and thankfully, since the publication of my book, a number of the films that I've written about are now available on Blu-ray and DVD and some even streaming. Uh, But there are still some that you, you know, including Lamarge, I mean, ironically, and sadly, her two, or I think her three finest films, Lamarge, um, Alice and Renée Lacan, are the three most difficult ones to come up, come across. Uh, they haven't been officially released. You can only get through them through gray market channels, or you know, going on YouTube and finding older prints of them. Um, yeah, so that's been frustrating. That uh, her finest work uh, is still you know amongst the, the hardest to find. But like I said, luckily, uh, much of the work now has become you know more readily available.
0: We'll talk about some of those releases and the work you've done for them a little bit later, but let's dive into the book first. So in your book, you present her filmography chronologically, and while you're doing that, you explore Sylvia's life through those films, and that's how you drive the book's narrative. She had a very difficult life, but you but the approach you took focused more on the films, which really added a lot of dignity to her story. Can you tell us more about the direction you took?
1: Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I didn't... Um... I didn't want it to be kind of a gossipy, tell-all, straight biography. I'm really not interested in those, and I I, find that style of writing can be really offensive at times um, because it is so invasive. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't want, um, while the book is mainly about the films, I didn't want to lose um the role that Sylvia's life played, uh, you know, in the production of each one of these. And, and you can essentially see kind of the trage- trajectory of her life in these films, um, and the changes that happened to her and some of the struggles that she had, uh, especially throughout the late seventies and early eighties. Um, so like I said, the book, the main focus, w- were the films that she made, but I didn't want to include enough biographical information. So people felt like that they hopefully, you know, will know her a little bit better by the time they finish the book and we'll have a little more respect for her, which is, you know, the main thing that I wanted. I wanted people to come away from this understanding that, you know, this was a serious artist. I mean, she was a, not only an accomplished actress, but a great painter writer. Uh, I mean, she was just a remarkable figure. So I really wanted people to um, come away from the book, knowing that she was much more than just a, a softcore adult film star from Emmanuel. Um, there had been a, um, a biography written about her a few years back that's only in Dutch. It's a Dutch language biography, uh, which, you know, got some acclaim. So I knew that there was already like a book kind of just about her life that was out. Um, so I wanted to, again, just steer clear of any sort of straight biography. I wanted this to be kind of a combination of uh, really a number of different genres of different types of writing, but, to have the biographical information, um, the, the information that I focused on be connected directly to her work, essentially.
0: And I think that was an incredibly po- important direction to go in because when we think about women in cinema, it's usually that salacious elements that define their career. And there's a lot of inherent sexism that's built into that that still thrives. And Absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about that legacy a little bit later um, cause I wanted to ask while you treat some of the darker aspects of Sylvia's career with such care and dignity, it is impossible when we discuss her work to not talk about Emmanuel and the effect that had on her throughout her life, especially being typecasted. How did that role affect her and what did she try to do to push back against it? And how did you, what were your goals to try to reflect that in your book?
1: Well, Emmanuel, I mean, it simultaneously made her career, and it also broke it in a way. I mean, she was never able to escape that, that role. Uh, I, you know, During my research, I, I uncovered thousands upon thousands of articles, clippings, uh, mentions, and literally it's nearly impossible to find one that didn't mention uh, the character Emmanuel during it, regardless of how far away uh, time-wise uh, the articles were written. And even when she passed away, I mean, every every headline included the name Emmanuel along with hers. Um, so like I said, the film did make her career, made her one of the biggest stars in Europe throughout the seventies. It was the biggest financial success in France in that period, broke the previously held record by West Side Story. It played for over a decade. Um, so it had just a monumental effect on her career uh, and life. Um, and it, it haunted her. I mean, she... Uh, really wanted to she was never you know interested uh specifically interested in making kind of softcore erotica i mean it just uh she she took the opportunity to make this film uh with this young director that she really really uh admired she was a brilliant director and uh yeah i mean it it just uh, completely was overwhelming uh to her her life and career um, and I, I really wanted the book to—I um, wanted people to understand that the film wasn't like a, a dead end for her uh, creatively. I mean, it it, it led uh, to so many great opportunities, while at the same time it hindered her um, to the point where I think there were a number of roles later in her career that she probably would have been more considered for had had she not been completely associated with Emmanuel. And this really became worse by the time she got to America, because throughout. You know, the seventies when she was making these films in Europe, you know, she re- received quite a bit of acclaim for certain roles. I mean, she was starting to break away from the character, even though she was forced to make the first two sequels to it. Um, but by the time she got to America, she was viewed, you know, just as a sexual object. And you mentioned, you know, the sexism and the misogyny, and that really came into focus. You know, re- reading and researching, you know, vintage clippings about um, her time in the late seventies when she tried to switch to English language films. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah, I mean, we live in a very sexist world and, and if you can just magnify that going back several decades in the seventies, I mean, it, it was, uh, really outrageous. I, 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 have a lot of, uh, compassion for her and, uh, I can't imagine, uh, how hard it was for her to, to go through that, to be viewed as, um, it's just a sex, it's just a sex object, and, and you know, as uh, just for this role that she really had no um, connection to personally uh, or or creatively, really, it just she wasn't really all that interested in that type of film. She really wanted to make, she wanted to make comedy, she wanted to make more, uh, you know, heavy dramatic films with important filmmakers, which she did. But again, she just could never quite escape uh, the character of Emmanuel.
0: On the topic of her being typecasted, one of the things I found kind of interesting about her when I was doing some research for this interview was that there were a lot of classic American films that she turned down roles for. Uh, Blade Runner comes to mind, two of David Lynch's films come to mind, I think Dune and Blue Velvet, and I wanted to get your your input as as a subject matter expert on her life and career, what would have motivated her in those instances to not take those kind of roles?
1: Well, I think, um, I mean, a lot of this is conjecture on my part, because I I mean, I have an entire section at the end of the book about the roles that she either turned down or, or missed or was rejected for or was just considered for. I think a lot of it was uh, probably fear. I mean, she was just in her early 20s when she made Emmanuel and just was literally thrust into stardom immediately. And, um, You know, there were a number of roles that I I felt like she was probably like I know, you know, one of the one of the major roles that she um, turned down that I think would have had just a major effect on her career was Ingmar Bergman's uh, The Serpent's Egg, uh, which, you know, the idea that she could have worked with somebody with Bergman's stature is uh, and she didn't, you know, and she turned it down was frustrating to know. But I I just think a lot of it was, um, you know, insecurity, kind of self-doubt. In that period, and then you know, by the time that the late seventies arrive, and her confidence level is maybe a, a bit higher, a lot of the the offers from a lot of the exciting offers from the early, sorry, from the mid to late seventies started to fade away. Um, one of the big ones that I think could have um, really she needed a hit. She basically she she wanted to cross over to English language films because she spoke fluently in several languages, including English. Um, If she had accepted King Kong in 1976, that would have been, um, even though that film, you know, did receive a lot of critical disdain at the time, uh, it it would have completely altered her career and it it would have been the kind of role that would have introduced her to American audiences much better than something like Concord Airport 79, which is what she ended up attempting to cross over with uh, several years later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was simultaneously fascinating and frustrating to read about, you know, these amazing films and roles that she, you know, had in her hands and she just let slip away. One thing that I really, um, I, I really relate to her a lot and, and, and sadly uh, for me and her, I it was an element of self-destruction, uh, I think in her decision-making. And I think a lot of it was just because of her youth, you know, I mean, you know, when you're in your you know, late teens, early to mid twenties, you're often not thinking about, you know, your future and, and, uh, maybe the best thing for your career at the time. And, and also frustratingly, she was contractually stuck in the Emmanuel sequels, uh, in a period when a lot of these, um, offers and uh, possibilities were coming into view. And so, you know, despite, I think Emmanuel two is the best of the series, but she did not want to make the second and third Emanuel films, and definitely didn't want to make the 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 one she made later strictly for money, uh, in the uh, late eighties and early nineties. Um, but yeah, I I just I, I I think that there were a lot of factors that went under her uh, turning down these roles. That uh, you know, like I said, frustratingly, I think just one of them would have completely changed the trajectory of her of her career. But it just wasn't meant to be
0: your answer really speaks to what I think What is one of the big tragedies for me about Sylvia and her career. And it's the tragedy of timing. Mm-hmm. She's, she's a pioneer precisely because the work she did early on was so edgy and raw when it was made. And when I think about her career and her influence, especially in the United States, you know, the United States is a very puritanical country. I mean, you could turn on the news any day of the week and see that. Um, But there are films released today where you can draw a through line between them and Sylvia. But personally, they feel really different in spirit in many ways. I was wondering how you felt about that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, the film, Emmanuel, has been overwhelmingly influential. Uh, I mean, you can't even, uh, I think, really put in context just how influential the film has been. And I think Sylvia really paved the way for uh, a lot of young actresses, um, the capability of appearing in a a film that might be more on the explicit side uh, and still having a uh, successful, you know, distinguished career after that. I mean, I've often mentioned um, people like Kim Basinger in Nine and a Half Weeks and Dakota Johnson in Fifty Shades of Grey in connection to uh, Sylvia and that. You know, Sylvia's work and Emmanuel really paved the way uh, for them to do that kind of work. And, and then to not be. Um, Sylvia took all the hits. I mean, Sylvia is still the one that's, you know, I, I still see her referred to as a porn star, which absolutely drives me insane. Because um, I think when people hear that term now, they immediately think hard porn, hardcore pornography. And that was so far away from anything Sylvia ever did or even considered doing. Um, but, um, uh, I mean, she took all of the hits. She still has that damaged reputation. Whereas somebody like, you know, a Basinger or Dakota Johnson didn't have to deal with that, even though their films, you know, might've been much more explicit, uh, in hindsight, it, it, it doesn't matter because we've, we've come to a point thankfully where I think, um, we can have actresses making, um, more explicit films and, uh, not being, uh, demonized for the rest of their careers, uh, because of it or I will say American actors. Uh, now I still think that there is a real stigma about European actresses, uh, especially ones that are attempting to, uh, cross over to American shores. Uh, there's something about Hollywood and the way that they treat, um, European actors that I've always found really, uh, disturbing and, and, uh, and and Sylvia definitely is a great example of that. And I mean, you look at a film like Concord airport 79 and you realize that she's working with Elaine Delon, you know, one of the great, you know, French actors uh, of the post-war era. And they're in this just piece of junk. And that's just, you know, that's just traditionally what Hollywood has done with European actors. They bring them over, especially women. And they just cast them based on their looks. They just cast them based on their, you know, quote unquote, sex appeal. Um, yeah, and it's it's harmful and it's damaging. And I, I know I'm I'm going away from your question, but uh, but yeah, back to your question. Sylvia and Emmanuel were both incredibly influential. Uh, I, I I think that, the, and their influence has not been. Um, I, I don't think it's been dealt with enough. I don't think she's gotten enough credit uh, for it.
0: I wanted to ask that last question because much of Sylvia's work still feels very powerful and dangerous today, even decades later. And that's largely because of the pioneering elements of her work. And some of it is perhaps even a bit projection because of her reputation. But I wanted to get your thoughts on those elements that still feel powerful and dangerous and what she represents.
1: Um, now. I just, there's a rawness to, uh, certain European art house titles, especially from the seventies. Um, I mean, it's a work like Lamarge, um, even though it, there's just a, uh, a, nakedness is not the right word cause, uh, that's, that's not what I'm going for, but, but there's just a, an element of, um, I'm having trouble with this. Um, there's just a raw element that's not, in, not found in cinema today. Uh, and there's a certain combination of um, you know high art and exploitation, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm having trouble probably putting this into words, but uh, yeah, I just think that there's a real vividness to uh, the period in the 70s when these films were made that we lost, uh, I think mostly due to commerce and capitalism Um, by the mid 80s. I I just think it's a a really unique and special period. And I think that Sylvia's career more than any other really kind of, um, you know, shows the highs and lows of it. I mean, she came into worldview, right, as the sexual revolution was exploding. And then, you know, her career blossoms through that. And then you can kind of see, you know, as her career progresses, and as it becomes more and more, kind of fractured and then disappointing I mean that kind of tracks with the cultural period in general as as we you know entered into this wave of kind of more conservative thinking in the late 70s and early 80s and and uh, yeah I, I I'm sorry I don't I don't think I'm answering your question correctly but I just think there's there's something really really unique and extraordinary about the period like 73 to 79 that it has just been lost, unfortunately.
0: You've had a lot of time to get absorbed in Sylvia's career since discovering her films and beginning thinking about the project in the late 90s. But when you started writing the book in 2017, how did your relationship and understanding of Sylvia's life and career evolve from when you first had the idea to write about her?
1: Oh, it was uh, it, it. was really... Uh... Almost overwhelming, uh, you know. Because when I initially got the idea to write about her, it was just because I, I, you know, I, I admired her as an actress. I was really blown away by this performance, and you know, the story of her career uh, really intrigued me. And I would read her memoir, so I, I, I knew, but it, in a certain way, that I related to her, um, but I didn't quite. Know the extent of just how much I had, despite the fact that we come from completely different backgrounds and different parts of the world. You know, when I when I started to research her life um, and career, I, I mean, I there was just such a relatability, and I just felt so connected to it uh, to the point where it was really um, it was really an, an emotional experience researching and writing the book. And I I hope that comes through in the writing. I I wanted it to be. Um, less scholarly and more emotional because that's kind of the way that I view art in general. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a real emotional roller coaster researching and writing about this woman who I, I just, I feel a deep kinship to, and I'll, I will carry this book and, and her with me for the rest of my life. I mean, it, it had a major, uh, impact on me and it, and it really changed me. I, I cannot, uh, and it's not something I can describe, but it just, I, I just it, it really had a major effect on me. And I wanted so much to um, uh, protect this woman's uh, legacy and uh, uh, give her back some of the dignity that I felt like had been taken away from her. Um, but yeah, it, it was a completely different experience once I started to uh, do the research. Um, it, it became much more of a, um, a, a personal uh, work at that point.
0: What really surprised you when you were writing the book? Uh,
1: there were a lot of surprises. I mean, uh, w- one of the main ones, going back to what we spoke about earlier, was just the number of um, projects that she could have appeared in, and that, like I said, takes up that, that one of the final chapters in the book. I mean, I was I knew about some of them, but you know, when you really sit down and start to read about about these films and um, not only the films that, she, that were made that she turned down, but films that you know, were just never made because um, there are a number of those in Europe that uh, were written about in the press that, that you know, never appeared, um, including her two dream projects, uh, which were, um, I think, some of the most surprising sections of the book. Uh, one that she was going to make with her partner at the time, Hugo Klaus, uh, the great Flemish uh, writer, filmmaker uh, they were going to make a version of madame beauferi which was one of her dream projects and roles that never got made um even though it was announced and there were there was an ad taken out uh and the other one was a remake of a a 1930s film that she would have been absolutely perfect for called sleeping car of the madonna's or i'm sorry madonna of the sleeping cars another film where an ad was created uh marketing campaign was set up the film was never made um I, Sylvia, for me, in a lot of ways, even though she was very much connected and belonged to the 70s, there was something about her that really harkened back to the 20s and 30s, specifically the silent film period and figures like Dietrich and Garbo. Um, so those two films would have been really, really um, extraordinary to see her make and and appear in. Um otherwise surprising wise, I think just how much I related to her and, and aspects of her life and mistakes that she made. And, uh, I mean, I've had, um, not to get too personal, but I, I and, and I, I feel like that we, we've all had our struggles, whether it's ourselves or with family members or, or friends, but, you know, I've dealt with chemical dependency issues in my past and alcohol troubles and so forth. And, uh, so a lot of that, I, I was able to really recognize, um, kind of the, the self-destruction that comes along with that. And, and especially viewing her career in the late seventies, around 78, 79, specifically 78, when she went back to the Netherlands briefly to make, uh, two Dutch films, uh, for the first time since the early seventies called mysteries pastoral, 1943, um, there was something about her in that period. There's a a fractured quality, a a quality of, um, kind of a person that's been beaten up and, uh, I think undervalued, um, that I really, I I don't know. It was, it it was very, um, trying not to get too personal here, but I, I just felt, uh, very, very, very close kinship to her. Um, in that period specifically. And uh, I think a lot of it does go back to addiction issues and, and problems with um, not only self-confidence, but the way that people view you. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just a, a really, I think the entire process was kind of surprising to me um, in, in a way.
0: I think that speaks a lot to what you were saying earlier about qualities of European actors that don't necessarily get recognized here. I mean, when we think about the Puritanism in this country and, you know, there's a type of like robust individualism and they, a sort of, that if you can't pull yourself up, you know, this is a country that kind of leaves you behind. And it makes sense in a lot of ways how, not just from your experiences, but the experiences of Sylvia and other actors who, who've who had similar issues, um, it, it, it begins to paint a more complete picture on why and how these films and these actors find difficulty in reaching American audiences.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's, um, there's a certain cruelty, uh, about Hollywood to me, um, that, I, 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 still feel, uh, is very much maybe even now more than ever. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a bit shocking to, uh, when I was doing the research about her, uh, you know, thwarted attempt uh, to cross over to Hollywood, um, that, uh, just some of the, the press clippings at the time and some, and, and just the, the attitudes towards her, uh, were just very cruel and, and really, really ugly. Um, you know, focusing on just specifically on her looks. And by, by the time that she made, uh, Mata Hari, uh, in 1984, which was, you know, the worst period of her life, I mean, was one of her addictions were really out of control and she was still, uh, struggling with this abusive relationship that she had managed to come out of and, you know, and just, and to have all of this disdain, uh, coming from the American press and the way that Hollywood was treating her. I have just never been able to comprehend, uh, you know, being in Europe, working with somebody like Claude Chabrol and how like distinguished and esteemed that that is. And then just within a couple of years, you know, just being in the absolute dreck of Hollywood's, you know, blatant commercialism and just gross kind of money-making only attitude. Um, but yeah, I don't know what it is with Hollywood and, uh, European actresses specifically. There's a great story about Julia Benoche, which I've always um, really thought summed it up, where she was um, offered a role in Jurassic Park, and she refused it because she she was like she jokingly said, "Only if I get to play one of the dinosaurs." Because I mean, she understood that the reason she was being offered a role in that film was because because of her looks, because of her kind of. Um, the way that American viewed her, Americans viewed her still as a French sex symbol, even though by that point she had already proven herself. I'm talking about Binoche at this point. You know, it didn't matter that she had already proven herself as one of the great actresses of our time. She was still going to be offered, you know, parts as just the girl. And, and ironically, or maybe not ironically, so that's not the right word, but the, the two actresses that Sylvia was almost always in competition with and lost several of her best roles to were Isabella Johnny. And Isabelle Huppert, uh, they were constantly in in play for a number of these European films and then American films. But the same exact thing happened to Ajani and Huppert in America. They were just offered these roles, especially Ajani, just offered the roles as the girl, essentially, just the pretty girl. And um, yeah, and it's it's amazing. I mean, Ajani was already had already been nominated for an Oscar uh, for the story of Adele H, another film that Sylvia. Uh, was considered for early on but then you know by the late 70s when a Johnny attempts to come over to America again she's just offered the roles as the sexy young ingenue you know um so you see that happening to it just didn't happen to just Sylvia it happened over and over again to just a number of these amazing european actors and actresses and yeah i i i don't understand it other than there's just a uh, kind of uh sadism about hollywood um And and I must say that my feelings towards um, kind of mainstream Hollywood have really uh, dampened uh, in the past several years, especially kind of writing this book. Um, And and again, I'm not trying to generalize. I I mean, obviously, I love a lot of the films that Hollywood's made, and I'm not trying to generalize about American film. Uh, But yeah, I think as far as the business end of it goes, there's just a certain exploitive quality about hollywood and the way that they view european talent
0: hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price price line. I know those last couple of questions were a little bit tougher, and I really appreciate uh, your responses and the vulnerability with them. I, I it was it was never my intention to go into that kind of depth with it because you handled the main topic of Sylvia's career with that level of dignity. But for those who are unfamiliar with those kind of elements of European cinema versus Hollywood cinema, those comments are really insightful, and I thank you for them. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I, let's, get, let's get back to the book. And uh, one of the things that was really remarkable at the book is that there are a lot of great interviews throughout. You talk to people who work with and knew Sylvia personally. Could you tell us more about who you spoke to?
1: Yeah, that was uh, definitely one of the, um, I mean, one of the, one of the most exciting aspects of writing it was getting to interview a number of the, her key collaborators. And a lot of that was uh, thanks to my publisher, Nico be from cult epics because um, yeah, he knows everybody and he was able to connect me to a number of these people and to arrange these interviews. Uh, but they included Jushek Khan, the, the director of Emmanuel, and later Lady Chatterley's lover, Sylvia. I mean, he was essentially the, the director that discovered her and made her you know the international star that she became because um, at that point she had only made uh, a three Dutch films. Um, and I did get to interview Pem um, de la Parra, the man who who did, uh, I, I guess, offic- officially uh, discover her and, and directed her in her first film, uh, the really remarkable Frank and Diva. I um, also got to interview Francis Lay uh, before he passed away, who uh, composed the, uh, the amazing uh, soundtrack uh, for Emmanuel II, uh, which Sylvia sang the theme song for. And he had never spoken about um, their collaboration in detail before. So that was really exciting for me to be able to not only get one of the last interviews he ever gave, but to have, you know, such a detailed, um, yeah, detailed memories about working with her and recording the, the soundtrack with her. And uh, it opened up because um, I wanted to focus also on her singing in the book because she did cover, she did record about half an album's worth of uh, material in her career and um, including for Emmanuel too. Um, I also interviewed a, a few of her co-stars, including, uh, you know, a Joe D'Alessandro uh, from LaMarge, And I think that was the first time that he had ever spoken in detail about working with her and what it was like and uh, his thoughts on Lamarge, Marge, Barofchek, and Sylvia. Uh, the cinematographer, Robert Fraze, who worked uh, as camera operator on Emmanuel and then director of photography on the beautiful Lady Chatterley's Lover, um, yes, yeah, so there were a number of, um, um, a number of people that I got to interview, uh, for the film, uh, or for the book that, uh, yeah, I was, it was just, I was blown away to, uh, you know, to, to be able to, to, to get these mem- people's memories, uh, in the book. And that really, uh, transformed it into, uh, you know, something, uh, or elevated it much more, uh, than it would have been just with my, my writing and, and research.
0: Absolutely, and that elevated element comes from creating a more informed, well-rounded view of Sylvia and her career, and is one of the main reasons why this book, I, I feel, is a very triumphant masterwork of film history. And I and I think that's.
1: Oh, thank um, you so much for that. <laughs> it's very nice. Thank you.
0: Um, And not just as interviews, but there was a lot of research into this, and I was really impressed by just all the gorgeous ephemera that's in the book. There's international posters, press materials, behind-the-scenes photos, and as well as a lot of intimate profiles of Sylvia herself. And as someone who's written a book, just even the process of finding those materials seems really difficult. And I I cannot even imagine the permissions elements that you may have to go through with that. I think it's very impressive. Could you talk about those materials and how did you find them?
1: Um, Yeah, so it was a, uh, well, uh, as far as the text, as far as the research goes, I mean, one thing the book um, that, that I'm really happy with in the book is that I was able to, uh, you know, find just dozens upon dozens of, of, of vintage interviews with her uh, from the 70s and 80s um, that really hadn't been, I, I think, read in, in decades. And a number of them were in Dutch and French, and I had to get translated. And I know those have never been read uh, by American eyes before. Um, so so basically, I mean, there's, there's a lot of material in the book that is Sylvia's own voice. And I wanted to... Um, I wanted to present those sections as, as completely as possible. Uh, so there's a lot that I integrated in the book, but then there's a lot that I just present kind of in block quotations because I wanted people to really get an idea of Sylvia's own voice because uh, it was such a kind of rhythmic, poetic, humorous kind of voice that she had. And, and I, I really feel like that her her attitudes and, and her like viewpoints of these films were really some of the most insightful at the time, and certainly more insightful than a lot of the critical uh, attention that was given to them. Um, so, yeah, there's when people read the book, there there's a lot of material in the book that is just Sylvia's voice. That again, I, I don't think has been seen in decades. And yeah, it was a uh, took several years finding all this stuff and going through, like I said, thousands upon thousands of clippings and articles and uh, foreign clippings, American clipping. I mean, it was it was a it was a really intensive. Uh, fun. I mean, I, I loved research. That was a great, great um, experience doing that. And, and ironically, I mean, I as awful as it was, I mean, COVID and the lockdown allowed me the time to, to do a lot of this, you know, because I mean, th- it was just so time intensive finding this material and, and just figuring out what to include and what not to include. Because there was a lot of stuff, or not a lot, but there were certain things in her personal life that I, I did not include, um, more embarrassing aspects. And I, I, like I said, more, I really wanted to steer clear of anything that would be damaging or embarrassing to her, her reputation or legacy, unless it directly, um, affected the films. So like, as an example, you know, when you watch, uh, a film like mysteries, which I I think that she's absolutely brilliant and opposite rugger Hauer, but you can see in that performance, I think that the weight of her addictions in the period, like I've just know from personal experiences about the way that you carry yourself, that you you can just feel a weight on her. So I did want to, I did include, you know, biographical information about the struggles that she was going through in that time that I think led to that performance. But there were things in her life that I, I didn't delve into just because I didn't see how they were connected to to the films. So anyway, back to back to your question. Um, as far as the, all of the, the beautiful imagery in the book, the lobby cards, the posters, the, the stills, the rare photos that all started, um, or was thanks to my publisher Nico um, who uh, really wanted the book to be um, this kind of gorgeous, full color coffee table book which is something this is my first book i never in a million years would have imagined that it would be anything like that um i mean like it's it's an it's it's a monster i mean you've held you've seen the book it's an eight pound you know hardcover i mean it's a real beast um and yeah so it was basically nico nico and i for about a year and a half um getting all of the this material together you know getting on going on ebay and finagling with different sellers in France and, and throughout Europe. And uh, so, yeah, I, I bought some of the stuff. He, he got majority of it. Um, I already had some stuff in my collection that I sent to him. And then basically he, once we compiled all the material, uh, he had a professional designer that went in and uh, restored all of it because a lot of the posters and lobby cards were in pretty rough shape. So the restoration job, I, I think um, hopefully people can see that when they flip through the book how much care and attention was given to it but it really was a lot of work uh for nico and his designer to to get all this material looking as as good as it did um and it's great i mean i i I think one thing that that's really really cool is that um i have so much of this material now in my collection and it's really neat um and maybe this sounds stupid but it's really neat for me to like hold the actual light poster or lobby card and know that hey this is actually in this book you know, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, but there's a real like certain uh, quality about it that's really cool to me to to know that we, the two of us, did all this together and 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 gathered all of this 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 material uh, for the book together. But anyway, I, it, it is a, outside of my writing, which people can definitely judge uh, positively or negatively. I think the book itself is absolutely beautiful. And uh, yeah, I'm just thrilled that it has all of this incredible imagery from throughout her career.
0: To have that imagery, I think anything less, if you just did a straight biography, like you were talking about, it would not have done her career or her life any real justice, especially when you have a lot of that baggage that has to be overcome in order to tell her story.
1: Yeah, and also I wanted to, um, you know, one thing that I, I, I really focus on throughout the book is that the way that the all of the films that she made, or nearly all of the films that she made after Emmanuel, the marketing departments of the films attempted to connect them back to Emmanuel, even if they had nothing in common with them. So like, for example, a film like La Marge, which was kind of the polar opposite of something like Emmanuel, was even at one point advertised as Emmanuel 77 in some parts of Europe. So there was like always this. So I wanted to like make sure that the book showed the way that these films were advertised. Um, and so a lot of the films are advertised as kind of like kind of softcore productions. I mean, the lobby cards will have nudity or the posters will have some nudity, even though the films themselves aren't that explicit. So I wanted to like, I wanted maybe younger people who read the book to like, understand how these films were advertised and kind of the, um, inherit sexism in a lot of it, uh, to where, you know, you're, you're writing about a film or watching a film that is really very tame, uh, and maybe barely even warrants an R rating. But when you look at the advertising for it, you would think that it was an Emmanuel style, softcore um, piece of erotica. Uh, so it was really important to me to have, um, you know, all of these different types of uh, advertisements from the time. So people could see the way that um, these films were presented and, and understand that, you know, the effect that that would have on somebody, because that was something that I kept thinking about writing the book. I'm like, man, she's just made this like remarkable film with somebody like Roger Vadim. And it's this beautiful period piece shot by literally Renoir's, you know, I think nephew, I can't remember if it's a nephew or grandson. Um, but I mean, this like heavy duty, beautiful, like production and it's advertised as this like exploitive soft you know, film. I mean, it, it, it was super frustrating. I kept thinking, how would this affect somebody? I mean, how would this affect somebody who's trying so hard to do good work, to do like, um, admirable, admirable work and uh, to have it be just so um, minimized and so misrepresented over and over again. I, I cannot imagine the frustration and how much of a toll that must have taken on her.
0: So beyond the book, you contributed recently to a video collection of Sylvia's work. What's your assessment of her legacy as it stands now since doing that and writing the book?
1: Um, I, I really, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've, it's been, it's, it, it's been a frustrating experience in, in some ways because I, I want so badly for uh, this person to be remembered as something much more than um, Emmanuel, as something much more than a, a softcore star. But I, I don't, we're not quite there yet. And I, I and maybe this is just an American point of view. Um, But I think we're getting there. I think because we're, you know, we are seeing where the majority of the films that I've written about in the book are now available in these kind of beautiful, you know, 4K restorations with, you know, special features. And I was really, really honored and thrilled to provide commentaries for uh, Mysteries and then um, a film she made called Julia. Um, And uh, yeah, so like I said, a number of these films have become available on home video they still haven't really made the, the transition to streaming yet so i think that that's kind of where um since that's the way that most people watch films now is streaming i'm i'm hoping that maybe in the upcoming years when a film like Chevrolet's alice finally becomes available i think that, that film especially even lo- more than lamarge because lamarge is a very explicit film as far as like the way that it presents nudity and sexuality much more than kind of the average film that i think an an american viewer is used to whereas something like Chabrol's Lomar or sharp alice i think will really be an eye-opening experience for um you know film fans and especially kind of art house film fans to see if it ever does become available um and yeah i really i want her to be remembered more as a european art house star rather than what she is now um and, you know, there's been a rumor about um, there was supposed to be a film made about her life a few years ago with the, the brilliant Dutch actress Sylvia Hooks. Uh, I don't know if that's still going to happen or not. I kind of doubt it since it has been several years. There was rumor of a Netflix series based on her life. All of this stuff makes me really nervous because I feel like that, you know, a lot of these series. I mean, you only have to look at something like The Recent Blonde to see kind of the way that they will treat women and especially women who have been viewed as sex symbols. And so I, I'm really nervous about, and especially people that have addiction issues as well. I mean, it's kind of a loaded gun and I'm really a little nervous about the way that they will present her, her life and career. And I, and I also don't want there to be any misunderstanding about Emmanuel um, as far as like, Yes, the role haunted her, and yes, she could never fully escape it, but the experience of making the film and the, and the love that she felt for Zhu Shekhan, the director, and and the bond that they had, um, I, I don't want there to be a misunderstanding. I don't want there to be kind of a, a Linda Lovelace deep throat kind of thing where people view the making of Emmanuel or the film itself is being, or the filmmakers is being abusive because that wasn't the case at all. That, that was not the case at all. And I kind of fear that, um, these uh, productions that are rumored about her life are going to make that kind of mistake and, and arguments. So we'll see how it goes, but I, I really want, uh, I want her legacy to be more, um, uh, I think remembered more correctly. And I I hope that my books made a little difference. And I certainly hope that the, these film restorations have made a difference. And I, I I think they have a little bit, I am reading more and more people are, I read the reviews of, of uh, the films that have come out on Blu-ray and DVD since my book came out and you, I'm starting, you can sense more respect. I mean, you can sense more like, Hey, she's really surprising in this role and she's really, really great. And, uh, you know, so yeah, I, I hope that uh, I hope it continues. Um, I, I will definitely continue doing all I can, um, attempting to rehabilitate this this woman's life and career because I I, I just uh, like I said, I think she was remarkable. I think that she was, um, I think she was the Dietrich of her age, and I don't think that she's ever gotten credit for that. And uh, I will I will keep going until uh, more and more people <laughs> start to realize it. <laughs>
0: I'm really glad you mentioned adaptations um, because I wanted to ask that last question because there's a new adaptation of Emmanuel being produced with Leah Sadu taking on the lead role that defined Sylvia's career. And Leah already has an impressive filmography. She was in the latest uh, Wes Anderson film, as an example. So it isn't likely that she will experience the same challenges from the role of Emmanuel that Sylvia did. And frankly, I think it's kind of tragic that we still have to frame Sylvia's life around Emmanuel because of how much it impacted her career, even though she passed over a decade ago. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how this new Emmanuel film could potentially influence Sylvia's legacy. Um,
1: well, I'm actually, I'm really hopeful for it because, I mean, I know that, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on her name, but it has, it has a female director, a very acclaimed female director, which I think is important uh, that a woman does um, direct the film. Uh, I think that's vital. I think to remake Emmanuel and have a man direct it would be a, a really dreadful mistake. Uh, and I'm really excited about Leah Sado. She's a, a, a remarkable actress, a really I, one of the best actresses of her generation. And I can't, uh, I, I think she'll do the part great justice. Uh, my main hope for the film is that um, it allows the original to come back into view because right now Emmanuel, you can't stream it. Uh, in the United States. Um, I mean, you can get it on Blu-ray, but a lot of people don't collect physical media media anymore. Um, one reason I want the film to be seen more is because I think people will be shocked. You know, Emmanuel exists a lot of, in a lot of ways due to its reputation. So people think that it's much more explicit than it actually is. And especially the recent, before Jushek Khan passed away, he was able to finally release his director's cut of Emmanuel, which removes a scene that neither Sylvia nor him had anything to do with and that he always wanted out of the movie. So actually the new director's cut of Emmanuel is even less explicit. Um, And so I I think, I I think once people actually sit down and watch it, they'll maybe be surprised by that. It's much less explicit than the average, like HBO series now. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's my main hope for, um, the remake is that it does allow the original to come back into view. And uh, yeah. And I think somebody like um, Leah Sado is absolutely perfect. I, 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 I'm I really excited about the idea that, that Sylvia's signature role is being uh, handled by um, such an accomplished um, actress. I think that's, that's great. And like I said, and she won't have the, the issue Sylvia did because she already does have the acclaim and um, a career you know, behind her. It's, it's not, she's not a new, uh, new star looking to break through with the role. So.
0: so my last question for you, for someone unfamiliar with Sylvia Crystal and her work, where would you recommend they start that best represents her talent?
1: Um, well, like I said, so the, 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 the three, I think her three best films or her three best performances in films, Lamar Alice, and Renee Lacan, um, well, Lamar Janelis, you can only see on like YouTube if you're in America or get a gray market version. And I know that's not the ideal way for a lot of people to start. Um, and Renee Lacan, by the way, is totally nearly impossible to find. I, I had to go through so many hoops to get an import copy of that. And uh, um, so that one's kind of out of the loop right now completely. Um But of the films that are more readily available, uh, I I should say officially available in the United... And I'm only speaking for kind of United States listeners. This varies throughout the world. Um, But I would definitely recommend Frank and Diva, which was her very first film. Uh, It's a really remarkable independent Dutch film uh, from the early 70s. And it kind of gives a great idea of where she came from and where she started. And I really, really love Dutch cinema. I fell in love with Dutch cinema writing this book. So um, I think that's an ideal starting point. And then what I would recommend right after watching Frank and Eva is to watch um, probably Mysteries, which was just made five years later. It's another Dutch film. But I think that you can just the, the shocking difference um, in her performances and uh, just her demeanor and style. And I mean, just the growth is astonishing when you consider that it's only a five year period. Um, and then um, you know, I would definitely recommend, I mean obviously people should watch Emmanuel. I mean, that's one of the essential movies of the seventies. Um, even though I think Emmanuel Two is ultimately a better film. Um, but yeah, I, I honestly I keep going back to Mysteries. Mysteries is a film that I really fell in love with, uh, researching and writing the book. And I think it contains one of her most uh kind of poetic and haunting performances. And I it's a performance that I think uh, Will, will be shocking to people who maybe have never seen her work uh, before. Uh, so yeah, Frank and Diva and, and Mysteries are, are two, I think, ideal starting points. And then, you know, if you, and also if you're you know, not into reading subtitles, not into foreign films, I mean, Jacquin's Lady Chatterley's Lover, despite being a, um, I think, a flawed production because of the production company, Canon Films, which really kind of did a disservice to it with its budget and some of the post-production work it's still a remarkable film and uh um, i would recommend that one as a, as a good starting point as well so.
0: well jeremy it was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today and i have to say that i mentioned this before already to you already you know on here and in person but uh that telling this story was a considerable undertaking in this book i believe is an absolute triumph of cinema history and it's gorgeous looking to boot and you should be incredibly proud. Um, And I hope that you get the respect that you deserve for having done this. Um, And I really appreciate you joining me today. Well, thank you
1: so much, Bradley. I I cannot, uh, I cannot thank you enough uh, for the, those kind words and uh, um, yeah. And for the interview, I I just, I, I, it really means a lot to me to uh, when I hear from somebody that, you know, that, that did have, find a connection with the book that, that really for a first time writer, that means everything and, and especially means a lot, um, considering, you know, how, how hard I've tried to, or how much I've worked to, to protect this woman's legacy and, and, uh, bring your career, career back into focus. Um, so yeah, I, I, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much.
0: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to new books and film with my guest, Jeremy Ritchie. His latest book is Sylvia Crystal, From Emmanuel to Chabrol, and is published by Cult Epics.